0: Tonight, we're talking about a little bit more divisive of an issue, and there are a lot of things that we know don't go together, right? Pineapple and pizza, mint mint and ice cream, uh, Netflix and finals week, oil and water, fire and ice, and religion and politics, or so our culture would want us to think. And given that this is a college group, my guess is that the majority of you in here are relatively uh, uninterested in politics because you voted in one, maybe two presidential elections, a couple other elections inside of that for senators or local government and you have no money, you have no income, and so you're not worried so much about taxes and property rights, and unless you're studying to be a political science major, your growth in thought through college, if it was like me, comes mainly through uh, a passive information of social issues given to me by culture. Of what's talked about on TV, I'm forced to respond to, uh, but I didn't give much concentrated thought to anything I thought about politics. But whether you're Christian or not, we can't afford to be thoughtless in the area of politics or government. And this week we witnessed a horrific tragedy in Las Vegas where depravity was on display, where evil was seen visibly. And immediately what happened afterwards is that social media blew up with calls to pray for Vegas, calls of sympathizing with the victims, of calling evil evil. But amidst this concern of human life, the conversation immediately drifted towards politics. In 140 characters or less, we began as a nation to diagnose what was wrong and begin to provide answers or solutions as to what caused it and what we could do to prevent it again. And on one side, we saw calls for gun control backed by staggering numbers of gun violence inside the U.S. On the other side, we saw calls saying that the majority of guns used were actually already banned in the 1980s. And then on the third side, we see people who are cautioning any sort of political leverage because this tragedy didn't exist to create a platform for politics. But instead, we should just be still and understand the humanity of what happened. You see, perhaps you posted, tweeted, or even felt one of these three positions. And to be honest, all of them are good insights. In fact, we need to know and take into account all of them to make controlled uh, and calculated decisions. But the question I want to get at is, why is it that when these tragedies happen, we immediately drift towards politics. Is it because we're just innate, inhuman platform builders, more concerned about issues than individuals? Maybe, maybe some of us. But I think ultimately we turn to politics and government because our zeal for politics shows us that at a universal level, we all know that something is wrong. That something needs to be managed, to be brought into order, to be protected, to be restored. You see, we turn to politics because the flip side of politics is justice, right? Politics matters because we know something is wrong or needs to be managed. And justice matters because we know what is wrong must be punished and made right. These desires are good desires. They're things we ought to have inside of a society. The question is. How is it that we take those desires and we make sense of what it is that we are saying? How is it that we understand those desires and we're able to move forward with good thoughts? The question is, is what is the worldview that you have that either constrained you to be quiet or compelled you to say something? We all were motivated by something, and we all are motivated by something in our silence, in our vocality, in our action, in our passivity. And this is why we cannot afford to leave issues like Christianity outside of our thoughts on politics and justice. See, Christianity is not a single-issue voter. Christianity is not an issue on a ballot. It is a realistic view of humanity, which provides us a worldview that we can sift through what we experience and our thoughts and what we think is wrong. And perhaps you're in here and you have been... um, kind of raised in our current culture where the idea of Christian thought informing politics is at best off-putting and at most offensive. Or maybe you're a believer in here for a long time who hasn't thought too much about the impact of Christianity on social views, politics, and justice. Or maybe we oversimplify the solutions to these things. But what we want to do tonight as we are on a campus where we are called to debate and discuss and to learn and grow, We want to look at the weight and the reality of what it is we're talking about when we talk about government and justice. And this is where we're going to say, is Christianity relevant to this? Does Christianity shape in a way which is beneficial and essential to how we view government and justice? If you've been with us, you know the three questions we're asking in this series. We're asking, how does the Bible explain our desires? Because everything we encounter, every emotion we have can be traced back to the way God created us. So we want to see where did these desires come from and how did God make them good? And then we want to see how the gospel renews them. How does the go- good news that Jesus Christ did everything required to, restore sin- to save sinners and restore us to God, how does that renew the way we think about this? And then lastly, in light of knowing what was wrong and what was made right, we want to say what do we do with this? How do we embody these desires for politics and justice? So let's pray and then we'll get rolling tonight. Lord, we, uh, we come before you tonight, and first and foremost, we want to um, pray for those uh, in our country who are hurting. We want to pray that you continue um, to bring peace. Lord, we ask that you, uh, in your sovereignty, you withhold uh, shootings like this, that this would be the last In America, that you would be kind, that we would see less and less violence because you've chosen to intervene and to stop and to change hearts. But Lord, I pray that as this issue exposed, that we need to make decisions on what we think is best and how we should be governed and how we are to act in accordance with one another, that the basis of our thoughts for all of that would be humanity through your eyes, that our love would be gospel love, that our hope would be gospel hope, that our truth would be God's truth. And we can trust you with the rest. And so I pray that you um, change thoughts and hearts and minds tonight, not on politics, but on the gospel. That you give us a bigger picture of Jesus than we've ever had to where we cannot help but put all of our thoughts of every area of our life inside of the beauty of what you did on the cross. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, first question. How does the Bible explain our desires for politics and justice? So Genesis 2, we've camped out there a lot. And so we're going to fly over Genesis 2 again. And here's what we saw when God created humanity. We learned three things. God created humanity to live at peace with one another. God created humanity to labor for the glory of God in everything that they were doing. And all of this was to be done in perfect and direct obedience to God. They had an immediate and a present relationship with God in the garden. And because of that, they had a right relationship with God, a right relationship with man, and they had clarity and purpose into what it was they were called to do in life. It was the perfect existence. But then Adam and Eve doubted God. They chose to listen to the serpent instead of God. They doubted that God's goodness was the greatest goodness. They refused to believe that he was the ultimate ruler. And so sin entered the world. And we saw this cascading effect of sin in the garden. The first thing and most foremost thing is that their relationship with God was severed. God took this people who was in this garden, which was not only a literal garden, but it was also the garden where God dwelled with his people. And he removed Adam and Eve from the garden. And he put an angel with a flaming sword so that they could not come back in. Our sin separated us from God. And then began to have conflict with one another. The first two children born of man got, were involved in a murderous fight. Humanity lost clear purpose of what it is they were supposed to do. And humanity began to grow. It began to expand just how God designed it to, but it began to expand outside of the relationships that God created it for. And so humanity grew and population increased and civilization began to grow. And we fast forward a couple thousand years and we're in the third century B.C., And God finds this guy named Abraham. And he says, uh, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of my people. I'm going to make you the father of a nation as numerous as the sand on the seashore and as the stars in the sky. Where sin separated a people from me, I'm going to pursue a people. I'm going to recreate a people where I will be their God, and they will be my people. And So he says this to Abraham, and Abraham and his wife have no kids and so we fast forward another thousand years and now we're in the second century BC. And this is a situation where if you have your Bibles, we find ourselves in First Samuel chapter eight. And at this point, Abraham, the promise to Abraham is a thousand years in the rear view and where Abraham had one, two children and the children kept growing and their children kept growing. We now have this nation of Israel, this nation which was Abraham's offspring. And they had just been delivered from Egypt where they lived in captivity. And now they're beginning to settle in the promised land as a real powerful nation where God is leading them and driving out their enemies before them. And at this point, they had been led by prophets, guys like Moses um, and and guys uh, who were judges that God gave them to speak what God had told them. They were led by the priests who helped facilitate sacrifices in the temple. But now they, they get to their new land, and they stop, and they look around at their neighbors, and they start to see things that the neighbors have that they don't. You see, they look at how God has ruled them. They look at the nation that God has given them, and then they look at their judges. And They look back at their, their neighbors. They look back at their judges, and so they go to Samuel who was their judge at the time. God would speak through the judges and the judges would help manage the people. And they come to Samuel and they say this in 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 6. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And so here are the people of God, they look around at the other nations and they don't see this intermediary, right? They realize the judges only has authority given to them by God. So they're not really dealing with someone directly. They've got these intermediary kind of representatives. And they look at those kings and they're like, I want one of those. I want something with armies and glory and power and might. Someone who makes executive decisions and is able to wield power instantaneously. And so they go to Samuel and they say, Samuel, we don't want to be judged like you judge. We want to be judged like all the other nations are judged by a king. And Samuel doesn't know what to do with this because Israel had never had a king. It was always ruled by the one whom God has appointed to communicate God's truth to them. That was the deal. But look at what happened Next, in 1 Samuel 8, 7 through 9. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, Obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So you see what happened here. Because these people come to, to Samuel, and they're like, your judging is not as good as their judging. We want a king, give us a king. And Samuel says, what do I do with this, God? And God tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. You see, Israel assumed this whole time that they didn't have a king. They assumed that that throne was empty, that that power was left wandering off in the wilderness, but they failed to realize that God was their king and God was their ruler all along. He was their best hope. He was their security. He was the one driving out nations before them. He was the one who brought them up out of Egypt, but instead of seeing God as what he was, they chose to look at man. In their sin and in their foolishness, they chose to trust the pomp of man instead of the power of God. And so why is it that we have desires for politics and government and justice? Well, this helps explain it. We were made to be ruled. We were not made to be kings. We were made to have a desire to have a king. We were made to long for someone to be in power over us, for someone to help bring order out of chaos because we were made ultimately at the core of our existence to be ruled and reigned over by God himself. And alongside of that, we have desires for justice. Because in that kingdom and in that sphere of authority, we want justice to be doled out by the measure and merit of the good ruler. We want our rulers and our authorities and those who create structure to be able to uphold what is right and punish what is wrong. Right? Think about times where maybe you were growing up and how many of you have more than one sibling? Okay, the majority of you. So imagine this, you're in a fight and sibling one harms you, the first person you go to is mom and dad. You don't go to the younger sibling. You appeal to the authority. Justice always forces us to appeal to an authority, and that's because God was always the authority by which he wanted justice to be measured. God wanted our desires for justice to point us to him as our true king and our true ruler. And this explains now Not only why we have desires for it, but why we're so frustrated with it. Why is it that politics are so divided? And here we see in this text God giving the people a king. God is going to commission, even for his people, human government. God is not anti-government, but he's given government here as something of good. And we see Paul talk about it in the New Testament. But he also knows that the people will wrestle with this government because this government will never be ultimate. God tells Samuel, hey, give them a king, but be sober and tell them about the king. Tell them the problems that their king will bring. You see, the problem with human rulers is even if we're appointed by God and allowed to have authority, that they're corruptible. They don't see justice clearly. They're often selfish or power hungry or perhaps too weak to fulfill the duties that they're called upon to do. King Solomon was the most powerful king in all of Israel, in all of the world, actually. God told Solomon, he said, no one will rival you in wisdom or in power. And so here's this ultimate king of all humanity, and look at what he says in uh, uh, Ecclesiastes 8.11. Get my Bible drill out. says this, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of, children, of the children of man is set fully to do evil. You see, in governments and in cultures, wicked evil is done, and the problem is, is that it's not immediately punished. And because of that, evil people can do evil things, and they see no repercussions for it. And so that's why we turn to government and that's why we turn to justice and that's why we turn to politics is to say, help us punish what is wrong. Help us protect what is good. Help us make sense of what is just and true and good. We want not only structure, but we want enforcement. We want not only safety, but we want retribution. And you see, when when Israel rejected God as a king, he graciously met their request by giving them a king. But he also gave them and therefore gave us a government knowing it would never rule the way he would rule. Knowing that it would never suffice the need of humanity to be ruled by someone ultimate. It was a glorious placeholder meant to be filled by another. And we know this because God promised a king. The same God who here was ruling without a king, the same people who demanded a king, God says, I'm going to give you a king and ultimately I'm going to give you a greater king. As the Old Testament unfolds, he say, "A king from the line of David will come, of the tribe of Judah, he will be a righteous king, a king which we see in Isaiah nine verse seven, where it says this: "Of the increase of his government and of peace, there'll be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts." We'll do this. And so here Isaiah is prophesying a king from the line of David who is not only going to be able to establish his kingdom but uphold it with righteousness and justice forever. Not with totalitarian power or with uh, domineering or with threats but with righteousness and justice and beauty and of the increase of his government and of peace there would be no end. The reign of peace and a good king forever and ever. And the people would flourish. And this king from the line of David is important to remember as we begin to look at the New Testament and begin to assess what it is that the New Testament brings that is distinct. It makes the first line of the first gospel of Matthew even all the more stunning as we look and see in Matthew 1, verse 1, where it says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, this is our second question. How does the gospel renew our desires for politics and justice? I mentioned earlier that when it comes to politics, we all feel, we all think, we all vote, we all respond, and we all long for for something out of a worldview. There is something, whether we know it or not, which is shaping and informing our desires, our wants, and our actions. And for Christians, our worldview should be centered on what the Bible says is wrong with us and how Jesus came to fix that. You see, Jesus is the king of the people of Abraham, of the tribe of David, or of the line of David, who came to save us. He is the king who is both divine, but also human. He met the human need with a divine solution so we could again be restored to the God who rules all things. In fact, look at the first message that Jesus came to proclaim in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It says this, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what did Jesus mean by that? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He meant the king is here, and with the king so comes the kingdom. And we begin to see what he meant with this because where Jesus went, we see these inbreakings of this new kingdom that, that came with him. We bore witnesses of the type of rule that this king would run, right? Jesus in Jesus' kingdom, Lame men walked. In Jesus' kingdom, blind men saw, widows were cared for, orphans were loved, social outcasts were brought in, the hungry were fed, and the wicked were openly identified and rebuked. You see, Jesus commanded demons to leave and they fled. He ordered sickness to stop and it shrunk. He called people to obey and in their obedience, they experienced flourishing and suffered no loss. He sent his disciples out as ambassadors, and as those disciples went, so went glimpses and sense and sights of that beautiful kingdom. And these glimpses were beautiful. They were idealistic. The reason Bernie Sanders had so much political uh, sway this last election is because he was this political dreamer. He was this idealist. But he couldn't even dream dream up these things. He couldn't imagine a world where issues were taken care of like they were in Jesus' kingdom. And who wouldn't want that? Imagine a world where Sunday night never happened. Imagine a world where Harvey and Irma, is that the last one that went through, Irma? Where Harvey and Irma are names of old ladies and old men and not hurricanes. Imagine where cancer flees. Imagine where physical disabilities no longer have a place, who wouldn't want to live in that kingdom? But that's the question, isn't it? is how do we get to that kingdom? Because if we remember, the last time we lived in the presence of that king, we turned towards the ga- garden, and we saw an angel blocking the path with a fiery sword. How do we get access to that kingdom? Jesus isn't here physically anymore. There's not on some throne somewhere Jesus sitting there on an earthly throne performing miracles for us to see. So how is it that this ideal kingdom, where all of everything we want idealistically is there perfectly, how does that idealistic kingdom become a real kingdom? And what does that real kingdom have to do with this real life? This is a fair question. This is a question we wrestle with today, and it's not a new question. It's also a question that uh, a, a politically inclined religious figure named Nicodemus once asked Jesus himself. And Jesus said this to him in John 3, 3. Jesus answered Nicodemus saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So here we see the biggest principle in the kingdom of God. Access is only given through the king. We must be born again in order to get into the kingdom. You see, Peter, what, what do we mean by this? Well, Peter's going to help us. Peter was one of the disciples who was there with Jesus as he was interacting with Nicodemus. And Peter, uh, using the same language, reflects back on this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, where he says this, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So there we see a lot going on because there's this burden. Like if I told you, same thing Nicodemus does. He's like, I'm already born, Jesus. I don't know how that's gonna work out. How can I enter back into my mom and be born again? But here we see what Peter says is being born again is not our own work. He has caused us to be born again. Being born again is something that God does to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And the beauty of what it is, is that we are born again to a living hope in Jesus Christ. Born again to hope, remade to long, renewed to have a renewed zeal for all of life. See, politics ultimately is about hope. Hope to restore what is broken. Justice is a hope that what is right will be protected and what is wrong will be punished. And we see those hopes every day. And we face those longings in all of our crises. But if we ever want to have a sure hope in in either of these things, in justice or in politics, we must have the hope that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We must be remade through Jesus saving our souls. Now why? Here we are talking about real issues like gun violence and women's health and taxes, and health care. These are real tangible things. You could touch them. Here you are talking about faith. What does that have to do with anything? It's this mental ascent. How does it impact the real world? Why does faith matter in terms of politics and justice? Because we must believe, first and foremost, that all of our conflict stems from the broken heart of man, which separates us from God. You see, Mark, Jesus says this, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 7, 20, verse 23. And and he said, that's Jesus, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, Deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So this is a text, those of you who are at our Thursday Night Bible study, we looked at a couple weeks ago, and so many times we point to what is wrong as what's on the outside, but what Jesus does is he takes what is wrong and he points it back to the inside, You see, the reason why faith is essential to understanding politics and justice is because gun control is not the root problem. Big government is not the root problem. Access is not the root. Constitutional freedom is not the root. Democracy is not the root. Racial division is not the root. The wicked and broken heart of humanity is the root from which all sin and evil stems. And the only person who can change that is Jesus Christ. You see, society is a corporate reflection of our individual condition. Society is nothing but an individual or a group of individual uses, And so we look at tragic, evil, twisted events. We see glimpses of our own heart without Jesus. That hate was our hate. That evil was our evil. That injustice was our cosmic rebellion against the God who created us to love him and serve others. And that's why we must also believe not only that Jesus defines what is wrong, but that Jesus in coming and dying on the cross bore the punishment of our brokenness, bore the shame of society's reflection so that we could be restored back to God, so that we could be made new, we could have a new heart, See, Jesus' miracles showed the picture-perfect government, a government which set up a space where restoration happened and people flourished, and it's Jesus' cross which shows the blueprint of perfect justice, where all of the wickedness was punished fully on the cross of Jesus Christ for those who were saved by him. Every sin will be punished either in your own suffering apart from God or on the cross where Jesus bore your punishment if you believe in him. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus promises a world where all our political hopes are found in him, even in this world. But even better, he also enables a world where through faith in him, our hearts, that root problem, the systemic issue was changed so that we could start living in a way where we give glimpses of that kingdom and honor to that king. You see, we begin to live out aspects of that ideal kingdom, what we feel like we ought to live like, and the king we feel like we should live under in everything here on earth. And this is the last point we look at tonight, is how does the church embody politics and justice? And so this is where the rubber meets the road for us here, right? This is where our tweets come into play, and our Facebook statuses are affected. Where do we move forward? How do we move ahead and how do we process what's going on? Do we just say, well, I know politics won't ever fix anything, and so I'm just not going to worry about them. I'm going to be the one who harps that politics aren't important and we should just pray that God fixes something or changes hearts. Or do we see this great beauty of God's kingdom We see social justice, we see orphans cared for, we see uh, equality, we see acceptance and we see love and we move forward proclaiming and, and dying for these kingdom ideals but we never speak about the king who gives us access to that kingdom. You see, on both sides we have a problem, a problem of apathy and a problem of missing the point. You see, the worldview for a Christian doesn't start with social justice. The worldview for a Christian doesn't start with conservative economics. It starts, the flame which lights the the lamp through which we see is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot afford to see anything without having the gospel shed its light on it. And the gospel gives us two things. It gives us kingdom expectations, and it gives us kingdom ideals, expectations and ideals. And I'm going to spend just real quick breaking down what I mean by each of those. And when I say believers ought to have kingdom expectations in politics and justice, this is what I mean. I mean that in Jesus, we see the hope of true peace. Jesus didn't come to soothe symptoms. He came to cure the whole disease. See, the right expectation before we begin to have any thought on politics or on what is just is that our biggest problem is that our hearts are separated from God and destined for eternity in hell because of our sin against him. See, you can feed every mouth, you can clothe every orphan and still allow more death than humanly possible. Sin has slaughtered more than guns. And Satan has shackled far more than any slave owner. That's the biggest problem. That's the expectation of what needs to change. The expectation is this. In this world, we see the consequences of sin everywhere. It is messed up. It is yucky. It is dirty. But Jesus offers true hope for this world. Jesus came to renew this world. Jesus is the true king who helps us structure and organize our thoughts. And the reason why politics is so divisive is because what happens is on each side, we bring our own God. We bring our own hope. We bring our own longing. We bring our own ideals. And when God's war, people get hurt, right? Remove access to guns, and we will have peace, says one side. Give me access to guns, and I'll keep peace, is what the other side says. Both sides are convincing. Both sides logically make sense, but neither of those sides are God. And that's the problem. We should never expect senators to solve sin problems. Human autonomy is not God, and neither is our constitution. So when we have expectations of the kingdom. We expect that only God can do God things, and in Christ he has promised to do those abundantly for us. It takes God to fix hearts, and God has set forth to do that in Jesus Christ. All of the messiness we encounter, we encounter knowing that God has given us a hope and a promise to restore it and to fix it in Jesus Christ. And with that expectation of both hardship and promise, then we begin to labor in all areas for those kingdom ideals. And when I say ideals, I've used that a lot now, and so here I am defining it in my last three minutes. Um, when I say ideals, I mean, what is idealistic? What's the, what's the picture-perfect thing that we want to live by? And so when I talk about living for kingdom ideals, I mean that we look at that kingdom that Jesus promised us. We look at that peace that he brings. We look at that restoration that he gives us and we want to take those ideals and we want to live and try to apply them as much as possible in this life. You see, let me give you an example. Jesus healed a lot of people. Right? We in our Bible, we're going through the gospel of Mark in the Bible study on Thursday nights and we're seeing crowds so densely packed for healing that they're like crushing each other. They're there to get healing but there's so many people they're actually harming themselves and Jesus is healing these crowds. Now Jesus wasn't surprised when someone died. Right? Jesus said, I just cured your leprosy. Now you're dead. Jesus knew they were going to die. Jesus knew that their bodies would ultimately break down again. Jesus knew that the healing he was giving them physically was not ultimate healing. And yet Jesus still chose to do it. Why? Because it was testifying to the true healing that Jesus came to give. You see, simply because we cannot fix sin does not mean we should be unconcerned with campaigning for the rights of the oppressed. Just because we realize that no leader will ever lead us to ultimate salvation doesn't mean we should be unconcerned about who is leading us or who we should vote for. See, I want from this room, I want us to become deep thinkers on political issues with the gospel as our starting point. From this room, I think, so we support an organization called Justice Ventures International at Sovereign Hope. It's an organization that works with legal aid in countries where human trafficking is crazy. And what they do is they go to these countries and they look at the laws that are on the books and they find the human trafficking laws because the problem isn't that they just love human trafficking. The problem is they don't know how to enforce their own laws. And so these people go there and they help these countries clean up their legislation but more importantly to enforce the laws that are there and why are they doing this? They're doing this because they see the freedom that Jesus brings us spiritually and they say if I could help one person experience that physically how much more can I frame the spiritual liberation that God is going to give them I want social workers to come from this group who are motivated to go and pursue change because all change for the good represents the good kingdom that God has given us in Jesus Christ. I want lawmakers and political activists to come from here who are willing to campaign and to lobby for greater good in our legislation so that we can testify to the God who is better. You see, Jesus is our politic. The gospel is our ethic. Eternity is at stake and lives are in pain. And so when we move forward with this idea of politics and justice, with the gospel as the starting point, we begin to work for what is wrong by understanding what God says is wrong. And we begin to fix what is right by proclaiming the God who can make it right. I want us to think through the implications of the gospel in all areas of our life and move forward thinking, acting, voting, and doing, fighting for kingdom ideals, knowing we're giving glimpses of the gospel in all those things. Man, it is a beautiful thing to look back and see what the church of Jesus has done in terms of writing laws and working for social justice in our world. But that shouldn't be our only legacy. We should take all the good of that and we should say this is only a glimpse of the goodness and freedom and hope that comes through the king of the kingdom. Think gospel thoughts when trying to deal with human problems because only the gospel tells us what's wrong, shows shows us how it can be made right, and calls us to worship God and labor for his glory in all areas of life. So think deep thoughts. And fight real fights, but know that the gospel informs all of it. Let's pray. Lord, there are uh, 10,000 things we can think about when we think about politics and justice. There are so many opinions. There are so many sides to every argument. And oftentimes it's overwhelming to think about how we can engage, or what if we engage and we're wrong, or how do we do it with humility. But Lord, before we think any of those thoughts, may we think first and foremost what does the gospel say about this? How does the true reality of sin and our right expectations shape the way we labor for those ideals? God, I pray that in this midst, you raise up men and women who go on to lead great causes for justice and for politics in America and across the globe. And I pray that they do so knowing that in everything they are doing, they are giving glimpses of freedom and peace which comes to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. That they are doing so out of a hope that they are born again to a living Jesus through his resurrection from the dead. So Lord, help us to think rightly, help us to engage rightly, sift our thoughts and our affections as we move forward in our world for your glory and for the good of your church. We pray this in your name, amen.